All right, looking forward to uh, our text this morning. We are continuing in our sermon series, uh, studying through the book of 1 Samuel that we have called Hail the King, but this morning we are taking another detour and looking at Psalm 56. Psalm 56 this morning, which I'm quite excited about. Uh, Entitled, uh, perhaps in your Bible there, in God I trust, which is kind of a little bit ironic because in the passage that we just saw with David there, he kind of seemed like he was a little bit of a crazy person and wasn't doing much trusting. Uh, but as we find Psalm 56, we look at uh, the, the subtitle here, the, the little description of this, and we read uh, these words, to the choir master, according to the dove, on the far off terebinths. Right, so we've got kind of this idea here that this is another psalm of David, a song that perhaps would have been performed. Uh, we think that um, that this commentary about according to the dove on the far off terebinths there that that probably is a another familiar song that like this is the tune that these words should go to uh, that it should be delivered in in this particular fashion. Uh, We are told, again, that it is a mictum of David. Uh, Again, we also said last week, uh, or in the previous studies of the book of Psalms, uh, when we've come to some of those passages, that we're not really sure what the mictum is. But hey, it sounds like a cool word to me. We don't know what it is, but uh, it could perhaps also be a uh, musical notation or a style there. Uh, But we're not completely sure. But we do find that it is a psalm that is attributed to our passage in 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. Uh, It's described here, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. This psalm is remarking upon what David went through, what he experienced when he was captured uh, there and waiting uh, to see what the results of of this situation would be. When the, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And so we find that we get this helpful uh, insight, a helpful look into the heart of David, how he processed uh, kind of this pretty terrible situation that he was experiencing. And what we see here is that uh, David comes uh, outright and deals with that situation before the Lord. He, uh, as you move through the passage, you see these uh, little moments of, of fear and then you see a glimpse of faith and you see him returning to some of the fears and then you see the faith uh, coming to light. But all in all, we find that it seems to me, and, and if I would suggest that through the passage here, we see that what David is doing here um, is processing the hardships and difficulties of his life. And he's doing so when he realizes Uh, that he has sinned. He's made a mistake. He has acted independently of the Lord. He's decided to go his own way. He's found himself in the land of the enemy with the sword of the enemy, and he is out there now captured, now facing uh, these soldiers who have uh, locked him up, and he's awaiting his fate. And I think in those situations, he realizes now his way isn't going to work. That there's no way out for him, right? And so we see in the narrative, the way that he comes out of this, uh, 
The way that he gets out of this is precisely by acting like a crazy person, right? He acts like he's insane. He uh, changes his behavior before uh, the Philistines and before the king of the Philistines here, or the king of, uh, of Gath, Achish. And as such, uh, he really brings about disgrace to his notoriety, his fame, to his personal identity. He brings uh, shame upon uh, himself in that he uh, spits uh, and it comes upon his beard, which we've said in the previous week would have been something that would have been extremely shameful and that you would have not have done, uh, you know, on purpose in any way, shape, or form. Like, it would have never happened. This only happens through, uh, you know, someone really being out of their mind. So this was a very shameful act. And so essentially what happens here is David is humbled. And, and I think that what David does through her, as we move through the psalm, we realize that David finds himself in trouble. He finds himself that he's not going to rescue himself. And he accepts the discipline of the Lord. And it, perhaps we're suggesting that the Lord, uh, I don't know if we would say instructs him, but the Lord puts him in a position where it says, David, if you want out of this, you're going to have to humble yourself. All those things that, that you would see as your identity, that you were strong, that you were the one who could rescue, that you could fight your way out of all the Philistines, the only way you're out is if you uh, are willing to humble yourself. And perhaps David has uh, participated in this uh, knowing that this is where the Lord has led him, and this was how he would have uh, applied that emphasis from the Lord to humble himself, uh, that he would have uh, acted as an insane person, that he would have purposefully let the, this uh, spit come upon his beard. But we find that this is what, he comes to this point by wrestling out the difficulties, the fear that he truly has in his life. And so we read this in verse one, after he realizes he's in trouble, after he realizes he's captured, he says this, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. So he begins his, circum or his, his, his psalm here with a prayer. He comes to the Lord with a prayer, asking for God's help in his life. And he does this because he, he remarks upon uh, a couple ways that he is experiencing hostility, that he's experiencing hardship. There's these various ways that he's being terrorized, he says. He says, all day long, an attacker oppresses me. David's communicating that he is constantly under attack, that he's there, whether he's uh, been captured and he's in a jail and there's uh, people who are surrounding him and they realize who he is and they're mocking him. Uh, or, or, or perhaps he's just feeling, you know, uh, like pinned in, like he's feeling uh, that he has nowhere to go. But all day long he's experiencing this. He's being trampled upon. David recognizes that he is, he's being oppressed, he's being trampled upon 
but he's not yet destroyed. He's not yet crushed. He knows that he's in a season of hardship. He knows that he's in a season of difficulty. He knows he's in a season of suffering. And beyond that, he knows that he's outnumbered, right? This is why he says, my enemies trample on me all day long. Before, he's like, I'm, I, I was able to take, you know, on multiple people at a time. I was Israel's great warrior. But now, I've got nothing. Now, I'm the captured one. Now, I have no way out. He re- recognizes that he is outnumbered. He's overtaken. And so, he looks to the Lord for help. He opens up saying, be gracious to me, O God. And I think that this is the position of uh, the beginning position of, uh, of our prayers when we come to the Lord in these seasons. Recognizing that we're asking for God's grace upon our life. Because the idea of grace is that you are receiving something from God that you do not deserve. It's not something that you that he owes you, that something that you're entitled to, but it's precisely his generosity, his care, his love. And David approaches on that basis saying, God, you don't owe me anything. You don't owe me anything. I should be here. I've acted foolishly. I've got myself into this trouble. And I should experience the consequences of my actions. But He doesn't just stop there and say, okay, well, that's just what it's going to be. He recognizes that the heart of God, the character of God, is one who is gracious. He wants to show grace to his people. And so he says, God, would you act? Would you do something that is within your character, but is beyond what I deserve? He doesn't deserve to be released. He doesn't deserve to escape this situation. But he's banking on the gracious nature, the kindness of God. And so he makes this request. Be gracious. I think this is a good starting point for us in all of our prayers. Because when you come to prayer, you have to remember you don't deserve to be there. We approach, the scriptures tell us, the throne of grace. It's grace that allows us to enter in. It's grace that allows us to stand before a holy God. Because we do not deserve to be there. If we were there on our own merits, on our own righteousness, we'd just be torched. We'd just be gone. Because we are not holy. But it's God's grace and that he has rescued us. He has paid for our sin at the cross. And he has made us clean, pure, So that we might stand before God as righteous and holy when we trust in Christ for salvation. That is what allows us to be standing before a holy God. It's his grace. Not that we deserved it, but that he loved us. And we respond to what he has done. And here, we have to approach the Lord in prayer all the time. Recognizing that that is our default state. We don't deserve to be there. But we're welcomed. We're welcomed in to that throne room of grace so that we might be able to make petitions to a God who wants to hear from us, who wants to be in relationship with us. He goes on and he then makes his petition. He goes on and he says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Now, there were times uh, when he was afraid. 
right? It's not like David was like, oh, I'm totally a fearless guy, just moving through life, no problem. I'm just like killing lions and tigers and bears and like, no, no problem. Like, I'm just crushing it. No, he had moments and situations and circumstances in his life that were producing fear in his life. That he realized he was in over his head. But here, David recognizes, I am afraid. He doesn't pretend like he's not. He says, I am afraid. But he's not also overcome by his fear, and he doesn't let it paralyze him. Instead, he does what we ought to do when we experience fear. He prays into that fear. He asks the Lord to deal with his fears. He prays about his fears. Right? Too often, what we do is we experience something with fear, and then immediately we go to uh, some sort of way that we are analyzing things to be like, okay, now let me find out and, and measure out the risk and see what my risk management is or see how much, how much resources this is going to require for me to deal with that fear. And, and immediately we go into to our own um, resource bucket to see how we ought to deal with fear. And it's like, okay, one or the other, how, how much effort I'm going to put into this? Is this something I need to retreat from? Like we just get super controlling about fear. And David says, I am afraid, right? Now, he recognizes his fear, but then here he's saying, the way that you deal with it is to not come up with a plan. If anyone was going to come up with a plan, it was going to be David. Like super smart, super athletic, great warrior, knows how to get out of things. Like this would have been the guy to like come up with the plan to deal with his fear. But instead, what David says is, when he's afraid, he doesn't look for a way of escape. He's like, I'm not looking for, for a way to get out of here. I'm not looking to be rescued. I'm not looking to rescue myself. He says, instead, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, God. He doesn't say, when I'm afraid, I, I put my trust in myself. When I am afraid, I figure out a way to get out of it. He says, when I am afraid, when I experience fear, I, the first thing that I do is I recognize I can't, I can't rescue myself from the fear. Right? Step one, if you're afraid, you're not going to save yourself. You cannot overcome that fear yourself. So you have to put your trust in the Lord. This is what David says. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. He has faith. He puts his trust in the Lord. Now, this is important because what he's doing here is he's saying that I am not doing something foolish where I'm saying I'm not going to exercise faith uh, in, in my own work, but rather he's saying that there is someone who is more faithful than me. There is someone who is more faithful than me, who's, whose record is perfect, who has more resources, who is stronger, who is wiser, who knows all. There's somebody greater than I. That's what he says. That's what he's getting at here. And so he doesn't look for his own way of escape. He doesn't look for his own rescue that he would bring about. Instead, he looks upward. He says, God, you're the one who can rescue me. And so he bases his response to fear 
on the character of God and the faithfulness of God's promises. So his response is not related to how much he believes those promises, but how good God is at keeping his promises, which he's 100% really good. So even if you're really bad at believing that it's going to come true, the Lord's still going to come true. Like he's still going to follow through on his word. You, could, you don't need to have bigger faith. You need to have uh, faith in somebody who doesn't fail, right? So it's not about you saying, well, I'm not like really great at believing. Well, it's not about you. We tend to always make it about us. It's not about you. It's never about you. It's always about him, his work, his love, his perfection, his justice, his character, his faithfulness. And when David is afraid, he says, I've got to look outside of myself because I'm not the answer. He says, in God, in God I will trust. He continues in verse 4, remarking on where he finds this confidence. Right? He's building for us a trajectory here that we'll look at in a moment. But he's building for us a trajectory for us to follow. For a, a, a formula, if you will, for how we ought to move through life. He says, I find confidence, right? verse 4, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. In God I trust. Now, for David... What he's, he's connecting that to God's word, right? Whose word I praise and God I trust. Those statements are together. There's two clauses that are linked together, right? This is a train that comes together always. You can't separate these two things. God's word, he praises and he trusts the Lord. They go together. If God's word is good and solid and faithful, then you can trust it 100% of the time. And David here, he says, I am not just trusting blindly. It's not this feeling that like, hey, everything's going to work out. It's going to be great. I'm just going to like have this chipper attitude. Buck up, everybody. Like, it's going to be fine. And you're just like really hoping that it's going to be fine. But rather, David is saying, I'm speaking from experience here. I have a deep conviction about what God has said in his word and that his promises will come true. And so his Faith, his confidence, is rooted in God's own word. He's not just believing random things, but it's anchored to God's own word. Right. So here's the full trajectory that he gives us. In verse 3, we read this. When I am afraid, I will trust. Right. First section. When I am afraid, I will trust. Fear, I will trust. There's the beginning and the end. Right. How do you get there? Then he reverses it in verse 4, and he says, I will trust and not be afraid. Right? So he flips it. So here's, here's the trajectory that he's laying out for us. We find, first, that it begins with the word of God, the promises of God. The source of faith is the very word of God. That we see his faithfulness laid out again and again and again. This is why in verse 4 he says, In God whose word I praise. This is the source of faith. He praises God and he praises the word of God because it keeps being true. He, he says, I can bank on it. Yep, it has come to pass again. Yes, the Lord has kept his word. Yes, the Lord's character is reflective of what he has said in his word. So this is the source of faith. That he sees this 
spot that he keeps coming back to, the Lord's word, that he's reading the scriptures and he's like, wow, look at all the, the goodness of God, who, his faithfulness, his kindness. Then he says, I've got to exercise this faith. It's not enough to just say, oh, I've, I've read it. I see what the scriptures say. But then he says, I've got to, to put it into practice. I've got to exercise this. And so he says, in God I trust. Right? So that's the second step. First step, source of faith in God whose word I praise. Start foundationally with the word of God. Then you exercise that faith in God I trust. Since he's been faithful, since he has kept his word, then you can now uh, extrapolate that out to your everyday life. And then beyond that, you find that the result of faith, the result of faith is what David says there uh, again in verse 4. I shall not be afraid. When you have faith, when you have the foundations of his word, when you exercise that faith on the daily, then you don't have fear. You're not afraid. So he starts with it, and when he recognizes that he is afraid, then he reverses the script. He says, fear's not supposed to be here. I've got to go back to his word. I've got to read and see who he is, what he has said. I've got to see that the promises of God are true. I've got to live these things out in my life, and then I won't be afraid. So he goes back and forth throughout this several times throughout the psalm because, like you and I, we're people who, like, see something and we say, oh, that makes sense. I believe that to be true. And then, like, five minutes later, we're like, oh, but I'm, like, so stressed out about it. And then you have to remember it again. Right? That's what's happening for, for real in the psalm. Like, he keeps having to remind himself because he keeps forgetting. It's, it's regular. Right? So if you're feeling that way, like, that's just what you got to do. Sometimes you just got to keep saying the thing. Sometimes we read these psalms and we're like, why is it so long? Why does he keep saying the same thing? Because we have to keep saying the same thing to ourselves all the time. Right? He's not, he's not writing this like as a book and like some like magazine editor or like book editors come in and be like, you know, you've repeated this clause several times throughout here. We're going to cut this and, you know, we're trying to like minimize word count. Like, no. This is, this is, he's processing this out so that we can see how we ought to live. And so the result of faith the exercising of faith, the result of faith is that he's not afraid, that fear is removed. And what is then put in the place of fear? Love. Fear is put, or love is put in the place of fear. That's how it works. And how does that, how does that make sense, right? How does that make sense? Okay, roll with me, right? The scriptures tell us that what casts out fear? perfect love, right? And what do we find about perfect love? Well, we find that God is love. We find out about perfect love in God. And so you find out about perfect love in the word of God. And so if you find out about the word of God and you find out about the faithfulness of God and the love of God, because God is love, and you see God's faithfulness together, like it's God being faithful to love you, to demonstrate his faithfulness in your life, that helps you realize, like, oh, he, he does care about me. He does have my back. I don't need to be afraid of anything else. He knows the circumstances, the situations I'm going through. He knows my anxieties and worries and fear. Because one of the things that, are, that controls us when we're, when we're fearful is that we're alone. Like, no, I, I have to fight this by myself. I don't know how to get out of it. Nobody else can help me. They don't know the depths of my heart. They don't know what resources limitations I have or or they don't know the challenges that I'm facing but the Lord knows all of those and so you're not alone and he's meeting all of your needs according to his will and so he's demonstrating his faithfulness but he's also demonstrating his love towards you 
again and again and again and again. And it's only when you come to the removal of, of fear that you realize that's gone because you recognize that you're loved by God. Your identity's in him. You're not worried about the fear. You're not worried about your circumstance. You're rooted in who he is. Now, David goes on and he says this kind of phrase that we all probably would say and be like, yeah, let's talk a big talk here, right? He says, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me, right? But then, like, you realize, like, what flesh is doing to you, and you're like, that doesn't feel so good, right? Because, like, he's right. Like, he can't do much. Can't do much. But at the same time, like, you know, human flesh can do a lot to you, like, right? They can inflict a lot of pain and hardship and difficulty in your life, oppression. It could get crazy. That's fine. He says, but, but, but I think what he's getting at here more so is this. Because he's just come off of this, this trajectory looking at the faithfulness of God, at God's work. Who can stop him? Who can, who can uh, thwart his ways? How, how can I be defeated? I mean, David, David is building his case for faith, and he says, I don't need to be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And I think what's happening here is he's remarking upon the sovereignty of God. That God's going to be in control, that he's going to rule, that nobody is going to touch him unless the Lord allows him to touch him. Right? And, and he, he, it's interesting because he contrasts uh, the, his enemies as flesh, human flesh. This very temporal, this very weak presentation. The eternal God versus the earthly flesh. Who's going to win? He's trying to contrast here the weakness of man with the strength of our Savior. Of course, the weakness of man is not going to win out against the might of God. And he does this because he's trying to, to say these words in faith because he realizes that his faith has given him a change of perspective. What once concerned him, what once arrested his attention, and he's like, man, all these guys are out here, and they all want to kill me. I've been captured, and I don't know how to get through this. They're all after me. Now he's like, kind of like, okay, well, like, what are they going to do to me? Like, okay, try to, try to fight against the God of Israel. Good luck with that. Right? He's kind of just like, well, okay, well, I can't do anything. The Lord's got to do it. And if, the, if you're going to fight against God, like, that's probably a bad idea. Like he kind of just comes to this place where he's, he's settled a little bit. But he only does that because his perspective has changed. He's not looking at himself. He's not trying to rescue himself anymore. His eyes are eyes of faith now fixed upon the Lord. He has the proper perspective. I mean, even Jesus urged us in the New Testament to have this similar perspective. Right? To not be worried, because he knows our, te our, our, our temptation to worry. He knows our tendency to get carried away with what others are thinking, to be stressed out. He speaks to his disciples and to, to the scribes and the Pharisees who were there following him. In Matthew 10, he says, do not fear those who can kill the body. He's like, those, like, what are, like okay, what are they going to do to you? They can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. He says, rather, you should fear him who can destroy both body or soul and body in hell. He's like, you got to have like some perspective here, right? You're giving too much respect to, to flesh, to these earthly uh, people who don't have control over your soul. 
He's like, rather, you should be focused on having my identity rooted in you because I will protect your soul. I alone can save you, Jesus is saying. Now, David gets back to his difficulties, and he lays out for the Lord in prayer some of his hardships. Verse 5, all day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. He's like, look, they, these people, they've just got their eyes on me like a hawk. Like, I can't get out of here. He's trying to, see, to, to lay out before the Lord this case that these people are out to kill him. That the urgency of the situation, that they are committed to these evil actions. He, and then he, again, inquires of the Lord in verse 7, For their crime will they escape? He's on the Lord, like, don't, don't, let them, don't let them get away with this. Save me. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. He's like, if these people are opposing, opposing me, they're opposing you. This is what David's beginning to lay the foundations of. If they are opposing me, they're opposing you, because David's saying, I've refocused. Before, I was going my own way. But now, I belong to you, and I'm going whatever way you want to go, God. So if they're opposing me, they're, they're, they're going to be opposing you. So don't let them stand against you. Bring your perfect wrath to bear on those who oppose you. Verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Now, kind of a, a, a strange verse there, right? Uh, it's kind of like, is this like David getting like a little bit like flowery, poetic with his language where he just like, I'm going to say some like strange things here. Like the Lord's got like some book where he's like keeping record of all these things and this like random storehouse of like bottles with people's tears in them. Like, is that what's happening? Yeah, basically. <laughs> That's basically what he's getting at here, to some degree. Uh, not perhaps in the most literal sense, uh, because I don't think the Lord needs jars to store things, because he's God. <laughs> but I think here, this verse is one of the most comforting verses that uh, you know, we can receive as, as Christians. Because what he acknowledges here, what David remarks upon here, is that the Lord gives personal care to each of us. That none of you are so insignificant. That none of us are, are so, uh, you know, boring or, or, or too plain or too simple or too drama or too, like, intense. None of us are, are too much of those things for the Lord. It reminds us of the Lord's faithfulness to his people. Because the Lord gives each of us personal care. He says, you have kept count of my tossings. He's like, you know, when you, you know, God, when I'm like, I'm trying to sleep late at night, but these worries are on my mind and I keep tossing and turning and I can't get a good night's sleep. You have a record of how many times I'm flipping and flopping around in the bed, trying to get comfortable, trying to, to settle down. 
when I'm overcome with worry and grief and anxiety. You have a record of those things. You know uh, what I've been dealing with. He says, more than that, you are aware of, in, in my heart, of all the tears that I've shed. You're aware. You know how much I have wept. You've seen every tear that's fallen. He cares about your sorrow. He cares about your tears. He says you've got a record of every one of them. Right? If the Lord has count of every hair upon our head, if he's keeping a record of all those things, why not? Is he, why would we not say that he's keeping a record of, of our you know, sorrows, of our difficulties, of our tossings and turnings? David's reminding us that this is the gracious nature of God, that he wants to meet us where we're at every single time. And he knows what we're going through, and so we can call out to him. Verse 9, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So David comes back now and he says, the enemies will turn back in the day when I call. He's like, I believe that the Lord will keep his word, that he knows what I'm going through. He knows my circumstances. And when I call on him, I know that he will answer. He says, he's confident that his prayers will work, that they will be answered. And the reason for his confidence, because he says, I know that God is for me. Now, here's an important mark, right? Because a lot of times this gets thrown around in the church, like, oh yeah, God's for me, right? It's like, well, it, it, sort of. Let's clarify what that means, right? It doesn't mean that, like, God is always for you no matter what you're doing and, like, no matter how you're living and no matter what decisions you're making and, like, when people are, you know, when you're suffering and having hardships in your life, God is for you. Like, God is for you in, like, a different way than you probably realize at that moment there. What, what David is getting at here is that he says... I can say that God is for me because more than anything, David has come to recognize that he needed to be for God. Right? He said, I've been going my own way, doing my own thing, and now I'm done running. Now I'm done making my own path. And so God is for me because I am for him. Like God's going to take care of me in the way that God wants to take care of me, and I'm going to be okay with it because I'm recognizing that he has all rights to do whatever he wants to do with my life. Right? But sometimes we take this a little bit like too, too lightly and we say, okay, I, like, I'm, I wanna, I'm gonna go into uh, you know, this job interview and I gotta get it because God is for me. It's like, well, I, I don't think that that's like a great way to apply this. Or, you know, you, you kind of use it as like the junk drawer verse that's like, um, like Philippians 4.13, like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like, do you, do you really know what that, like, what that verse is about? Because it doesn't mean, like, you can literally do anything because God will, like, enable you to do it. Like, that's not the point of that verse, right? We kind of use it in, like, this, like, weird, like, bumper sticker sort of way. That's not what's happening here, right? If you're excited about, like, this verse, you probably are thinking about it in the wrong way, right? If, if we wanted to say it another way, we should say, God will be for you if you are 
solely focused on being in him, right? That's the way you can say with excitement and guarantee that this is going to work. But if you're looking for like a little like, you know, extra hot sauce on your life to like make things go better, like this is not the, the little like, yeah, God's for me. Okay. So just keep, keep it in perspective here because David, right, he's in trouble. And he's not saying that, that like he can't fail because like, you know, he's just realizes that God's for him. He has rooted this thought in the fact that he's repenting. That's where this is coming from. He's coming to a place of repentance over his actions. This is why, again, he reminds himself of the promises of God. Right? He returns to those same verses uh, that we looked at previously. It's like almost verbatim. Verse 10. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. It's like, again... He's like, I got to keep reminding myself of this. I got to start with the foundations. I got to start with the truth of the gospel. I got to start with the promises of God. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? He's like, he's running, he's running through this like uh, cycle in his mind. All the fears, he's like, okay, I got to go through it again. He's feeling that temptation perhaps. And so he repeats this refrain. And then he finishes here in verse 12 with kind of a surprising twist. But I love this. I love the confidence here. Right? He says in verse 12, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Now, David, he comes out and says, I'm all locked up here. I'm, I'm surrounded in Gath. I've been captured by the Philistines. But now he says, I've got to perform my vows to you, oh God. Like, I will render thank offerings to you. What, like, what's he getting at there? Like, David all of a sudden is like, he's like kind of like sensing, is he sensing that he's like, oh, this is, could be end of life. And so like, I got to like, make sure that like, I'm on the up and up with the Lord. And like, I did all the things I said he would do. No, David is speaking in a future tense in light of his present situation. When David says here, when he references performing vows, it's not a remark regarding performing unfulfilled past vows. But rather, these are vows of sacrifices, of thanksgiving to the Lord for delivering him from this situation. He's like, I got to get out of here to go do the vows that I got to pay because like, I'm so confident that you're going to deliver me from this. He's like, I, I know I'm going to have to offer vows of thanksgiving, so I'm looking forward to that. I've got to, go, I've got to get out of here so I can go do that. David is looking beyond his current situation to seeing how now he can respond in thanks. right? And so here's the final, the final component of this trajectory of dealing with fear. right? You have to come to the place of moving from exercising faith to replacing, or, or yeah, exercising um, faith to replacing that faith with love, right? You, that's how you, how, how you live there. But then you have to respond in thanksgiving, right? You have to respond in thanksgiving for that grace that has been given to you. And when you respond in thanksgiving, it puts you right back at the beginning of the cycle where you're 
enjoying his word and you're coming back to his promises because you see, thank you for keeping your promises for your word. And then you're leaving yourselves little breadcrumbs for the next one. And if you stay in that cycle, then you can fight off fear. But if you don't return to thanksgiving, then when are you going to return back to his word? When fear comes again, when you're already destroyed. But if you want to insulate yourself from fear, if you come through the process, you realize you have to offer thanksgiving, then you end up back at his word. You end up looking at his promises, at his faithfulness. And so David, he references these vows. He knows that he owes them to the Lord. He considers his deliverance, you know, to be absolutely certain. So much so that he says, verse 3, you have delivered my soul from death. It's like, David, you're like in jail still. Like, you're getting like, like pretty confident there. You've delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. Right? Though he's still in enemy territory, he still sees himself as rescued. He's like, I'm here, but I know you're going to be faithful. I know you've rescued me. I'm not out of it yet, but I know that you will. And of course, he attributes this to the Lord. He's not trying to rescue himself anymore. He says, you have delivered my soul from death. He doesn't say, you know, I've escaped, I've delivered myself, I found a way out, I'm so clever. He just says, I gave up, you delivered me. You delivered me. It's God and God alone who delivers his people from enemies. You never deliver yourself. You're never a part of the equation, right? Your job is to trust and let the Lord work. Let him go to work, let him do his thing. You see him rightly, you get out of the way, you see him work, you come back in and you worship. Right? That's your job. You get out of the way, you see him, you worship. Those are your jobs. You're not doing the work. You're not strong enough. You don't have enough resources. You're not going to make it. Let the Lord do the work. That's why he's invited you in. To let him work on your behalf. Now, David is not just delivered out of this situation to be rescued, but he says, I'm delivered for a purpose. Right? We end with this. You have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. That I may walk before God in the light of life. This is his purpose, that I'm going to then be in the Lord's presence again, that I'm going to walk with him. I'm going to enjoy the Lord. I'm going to be in his word. I'm going to be returning to him in thanksgiving. I'm going to be performing my vows. I'm going to be following him. This is what David's getting at here. He's processing these things. He's processing his fears. He's processing these accusations that he's receiving from uh, you know, from these people who are surrounding him, as he says in, in verse 7, like, they're stirring up strife. They're lurking there. They're watching me. They're waiting for my life. They're surrounding him. Right? They're there looking upon his life and saying, it's just a matter of time until, until you're executed. Right? I don't think that, that it's, an, it's an accident that the next time that we see kind of this similar phrasing, Jesus is the one who pulls it out. It's so crazy. It's so crazy how, how the Lord does this. Because the next time we kind of see this come to play, Jesus himself remarks upon himself being the light of life. 
right? If you flip over into John 8, you'll see the parallels as we work through this last little section. It's in John 8 that we find, <coughs> excuse me, that we find here Jesus, of course, uh, in a section where he is with this woman uh, caught in adultery. And he's there early in the morning and they're, you know, at the temple and all these people are surrounding him and he's teaching. And it's the scribes and the Pharisees, right? It's, of course, uh, these people who want to bring this accusation and they toss this woman in the middle. Right? And they're here not just to put her on trial, but to put Jesus on trial. They're there not just to, to bring condemnation upon her, but to bring condemnation upon Jesus. And so we read in verse 3, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to her, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Right? So here's the intention. It's a group of people. There's a woman in the middle who, what'd she do? It doesn't say that she didn't do it. It says she was caught in the act of this. It says that she is guilty, that she is deserving of punishment, that she's there surrounded by her accusers waiting for what we're told should be her execution. It's just straight up. This is what's happening. And they say, what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? And they say this, we're told, explicitly to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Because Jesus is the problem. we got to get rid of this guy. He's ruining everything. And Jesus goes down, he bends down, and wrote with his finger on the ground, verse 7, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, right? Just, come on. They continue to ask him. They continue to petition him. They continue to fire at him. They're accusing, saying, come on, say something. Come on, Jesus. It's clear what should be done here. What should happen? This person is deserving. They're just firing rapid fire at him. He stands up and he says this, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I mean, absolutely brilliant response. Right? Because he doesn't say, he doesn't say that she's not guilty. He doesn't say that she's not deserving. He says, whoever is the qualified judge, if you're the one without sin, albeit, go ahead. You can be the first one. You can lead the charge. What he says is that you are all disqualified. You're not allowed to judge. You're not the judge. So you don't need to bring the punishment. 
The one person who is qualified, of course, is Jesus. He's the one person who is qualified. This woman knows what she did. She knows her circumstances. She knows that she's deserving of this execution. And Jesus comes up and he, st- he says this, and then we read this, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Right? The most mature, the elders, the leaders of the community leave first. And Jesus was left alone with her, with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's kind of interesting how, like, the next transition there off of this little pericope that we have of Jesus and this woman who's caught in adultery is him saying, I'm the light of the world. (laughs) Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, this woman is surrounded. She is, is cornered in by her accusers. It's, she's deserving of death, just like David. But it's, it's when she precisely doesn't defend herself, she gives up. She lets Jesus fight the battle. He goes in. He takes care of business. And it, she is, uh, her, her punishment is stayed because of the grace that God has shown her. Right? Now, how can Jesus then say that, like, I don't condemn you? Because clearly he, she was also in sin. And he says, go and sin no more. You see, in Jesus' mind, he knew that I can't require payment from this woman because I would be exactly the same as the Pharisees. He could require that. But he was demonstrating grace, and he said, you know what? I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay for that sin. He was standing face to face with sin that he would have to pay for personally. And so as the righteous judge, he wasn't just saying like, well, you know, it's not going to cost anybody anything. He knew exactly what it was going to cost him. He knew exactly what it was going to take for that sin to be forgiven. And I think there Jesus says, when he said, neither do I condemn you, he was speaking like David was speaking earlier speaking into future tense, that this woman wouldn't be condemned in the future because Christ's work would be applied to her account. You see, this is exactly what the Lord does for us. He delivers us in this way so that we might not be condemned, but that we might see that he truly is the light of the world, that he truly is the one that asks us to follow him and that we might not walk in darkness. Because that's how David got in this trouble in the first place. That's how we always get ourselves in trouble. We go walking in darkness. We go into the land of the enemy, carrying the enemy's sword, doing dumb stuff. We get ourselves into trouble. And then we start panicking and giving into fear. But Jesus says, 
If you walk with me, you will have the light of life. You're not going to get yourself in trouble when you can see everything. When the truth of the gospel is revealing everything before you, you can walk in confidence with faith because you know that God's faithful promises are true and he won't let you down. And so as you move through your life this week, as you work through uh, situations of hardship and difficulty, when you go through this week times when you were overwhelmed with academics or schoolwork or life decisions and big things, don't try to handle it yourself. You know, you know what you ought to do. Go to the source of faith. God, in whose word I praise. Exercise that faith. Trust him. Right? And then the result of faith will come forth. You will not be afraid and then follow that up with those sacrifices of thanksgiving. And then you return back to the beginning. If you're with him, if you're walking with the light of life, your path will always be illuminated. And you won't stumble. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness, for your word. We're thankful that you see us exactly where we are and you know exactly what we need and you want to apply these things to our lives. And so we trust you. We give these things up to you, asking that you will <coughs> have your way in our hearts. You know that our temptation is to go our own way and come up with our own ideas. And oftentimes it's to our detriment that we think we're smarter than we really are and that we have better ideas than we really do. And and, and they're just ideas that aren't your ideas. And so, Lord, we want to stop coming up with ideas that are apart from you and not be in such a rush and slow down and let you work. And so give us patience. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us discernment to walk faithfully with you each day. We need your help. We can't do it on our own. And so deliver us. We look forward to these times where we can offer uh, just these sacrifices of thanksgiving. We can give you thanks and praise with the entirety of our lives. And so Lord, change us, transform us, help us to draw near to you day by day. We love you. Amen.